listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the evening of Monday, the 16th of August in Seoul, and the morning of the same day on the east coast of the United States, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's guests, Jonathan Corrado and Marcus Garlowski. Oh, yeah, did I get that right? Galauskas to talk about US intelligence failures on China's intervention in the Korean War, both what it meant in 1950 and what it means today. But before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this episode with everyone you know and three people who you don't. Secondly, do check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please email us at podcast at nknews.org. All right, guest one, Jonathan Corrado, is the policy director at the Career Society based in Manhattan. In January last year, he hosted a discussion in which I was lucky enough to be a panelist talking about the challenges of reporting on North Korea. I believe it may still be up on the YouTube. Jonathan is also a contributor to NK News, and he has an MA from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and he writes about the US-South Korea alliance and North Korea. You can find him on Twitter at jcorrado1953. Welcome on the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Jocko. Pleasure to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller, right? That's right, sir. <laughs> and my second guest, Marcus Galauskas, has been on the NK News podcast before. You'll find him on episode 152. He's an independent strategic analyst who has specialized in North Korea for two decades. And you can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Underscore G underscore two. Welcome back on the show, Marcus. Hey, thanks, Jacko. And we're having this discussion today uh, because Jonathan recently published a paper titled Rethinking Intelligence Failure, China's Intervention in the Korean War, and that came out in the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence. And we have Marcus here because I understand that you two gentlemen have something interesting that you're working on together, and we'll hear a bit more about that later. Let's start with the first question, China's intervention in the Korean War and America's intelligence failure. Why is this topic still important today? Yeah, thanks so much, Jaco. A uh, huge fan of the NK News podcast and uh, pleasure to be here with you today. And also such an honor to be uh, on the program alongside Marcus, uh, from whom I'm learning so much about this topic. So excellent. I I'm just going to try to give a little bit of a rundown and then hopefully uh, Marcus can, can chime in as well. Hmm. So in, in the case of 1950, the US analysts and policymakers were right about Chinese military capabilities, but they failed to understand their intentions and it's possible that the exact same thing could happen again in the future. Given that reality, I think that not enough is being done to reduce that risk and to prepare. So in 1950, a shift in Chinese capabilities, namely the mobilization of hundreds of thousands of troops to the border of North Korea, prompted a flurry of debate and analysis that ultimately got some fundamental questions wrong. What are they doing there? Under what circumstances will they deploy? And for what objective? Now, this is especially striking since uh, early on, the CIA produced reports concluding that the deployment of Chinese forces, though ill-equipped and lacking air cover, could play a decisive role in the fighting if they did indeed intervene. But the same reports concluded that the Chinese Communist Party had no intent to do so. Even after contact was made in October and November, many analysts continued to assert that the primary purpose of the intervention was limited to the protection of a border-adjacent hydroelectric dam. So this prompts us to wonder, why did we get the questions so wrong? The simple answer is that the unaddressed presence of cognitive bias prevented the U.S. from understanding China's threat perception, its risk tolerance, and its strategic culture. 
Today, the stakes are much higher, despite the fact that neither the US nor China wants to fight one another on the peninsula, and they actually share some objectives and would prefer a continuation of the status quo over a dangerous destabilization. It's not difficult to imagine an array of contingencies, things like uh, palace intrigue, a nuclear accident, North Korea provocation, that would induce both Beijing and Washington to intervene, possibly with conflicting agendas. Today, the distribution of power is much different, needless to say. China's regional ambitions have grown. It can mobilize a lot faster. Its arsenal is infinitely more lethal. And of course, China now possesses nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, Beijing's leaders refuse to hold discussions between US and Chinese military leaders on the combatant command level about contingency planning. And that would be really important to help avoid unnecessary conflict. Uh, that, that's why we need to learn the lessons from 1950 and strive to truly understand China's strategic thinking, its risk calculus, its willingness to engage. Uh, and, and these are th all things that I'm learning a lot about from Marcus. So I'm hoping that he can also add in some thoughts. Yeah, Marcus, please uh, chime in. Sure. So uh, I think Jonathan makes some great points. And so I just like to boil it down to three things about wh why it's important today. Uh, the first one is, is this whole question of, uh, of bias and how this is such an excellent case study um, to help uh, teach analysts and policymakers about how biases can affect uh, analysis, how they can affect decision making. Uh, it's, it's just such a great uh, and powerful example. I, I think the second reason why it's, it's still important is because the structures and the processes of intelligence were actually significantly affected by uh, the failure to really adequately anticipate the, the Chinese invasion. And so uh, I think if you want to understand the, the U.S. intelligence community's processes and culture and, and how it came to be today, looking at this seminal intelligence failure is, is very important and I would argue much less understood than the failure at Pearl Harbor that led to the creation of intel the intelligence community. This was the first real uh, intelligence failure of the intelligence community once <laughs> it was uh, constituted. And then the third reason... Uh, is because China is such a huge national security challenge today. Uh, and so understanding how we got China wrong uh, in 1950 could per perhaps hopefully help us understand how we might get uh, China wrong in the, in the years ahead and really provide uh, some valuable insights considering that the strategic cultures, I would argue, of China and the United States are not as different from 1950 as we might like to think. Okay, well, let, let's go back and, and sort of set the scene for our listeners there. Why was it that China... Uh, did choose to enter the Korean War in 1950? So my understanding is that it was primarily based on their perception of a direct security threat that was impacting their own strategic posture in the region. They were thinking much more internationally than we often give credit to, even today when we do retrospective analysis. A, a lot was given, especially by Chinese China's own propaganda, about the cause of fraternal socialism helping out fellow communist state in need. Hmm. However, I think when we go backwards and we look at the documents, we look at the discussions, and I hope to get into this a little bit later, um, especially those early conversations between Stalin, Mao, and Kim over Kim getting the green light to go ahead and invade the South, and Stalin urging Mao to support that, and Mao's misgivings about doing so. The original misgivings were that he wanted to first proceed with the end of the Chinese Civil War and invade Taiwan. And with the thinking that the U U.S. wasn't going to stomach two, <laughs> two communist invasions in Asia. Yeah. And, and he ended up being right, right? Because what's the first thing that the U.S. did after North Korea invaded South Korea? 
sent the seventh fleet into the Taiwan Strait, right? So, so those issues were linked for the US. But however, we were surprised when in the minds of the Chinese leadership, they were also linked, right? So they perceived this as US imperialist aggression. And in order to preserve whatever advantage they did have, they foreseeing that the Japanese military is going to grow, America's foothold in the region is only going to grow. Action needed to be taken urgently to prevent the loss of a communist state in being in North Korea. Now, there's uh, obviously, uh, for any momentous historical event, there's always a number of different reasons and factors. Um, you've already mentioned one reason why the, uh, or one basket of reasons why the US failed to predict China's intervention, and that is uh, cognitive biases. Uh, are there other things, you know, other baskets or other arrows in that quiver, so to speak, for you know, why the US failed to make that prediction? Yeah, I'd like to jump in here. I think it's a, it's a perfect example of some interpersonal and uh, organizational dysfunctionality. Uh, and at the center of the problem is General Douglas MacArthur hmm. and his relationship uh, with his staff, his relationship with President Truman, and his outsized influence on uh, the assessment of the situation. So MacArthur had a very strong personal bias that the Chinese were not going to intervene that really stemmed from his confidence and his understanding of East Asian mindsets, uh, given the amount of time that he spent in East Asia over the course of his career fighting, of course, the, the Japanese during the Second World War as, as a big part of that. And then also MacArthur's confidence in his capabilities, uh, his belief that if the Chinese were to intervene, that US air power would be able to inflict such massive casualties mm. uh, on the Chinese forces that their intervention would be ineffective. I think those, those two elements in, in combination led MacArthur to be overconfident that essentially he, through his own uh, capabilities, could deter China from making that uh, decision to intervene. And that confidence permeated his staff to the point where his own intelligence officer, General Willoughby, was actually actively suppressing evidence of potential Chinese intervention, even as it was ongoing, to support General MacArthur's contention that the Chinese would not intervene. And so Willoughby was not the type of intelligence officer who did like what we used to say in when we were at the National Intelligence Council, speak truth to power. Mm. Will Willoughby did the exact opposite. He, he spoke he power truth. MacArthur what he wanted to hear. <laughs> um, and, and so from stemming from that, you have MacArthur's uh, outsized ability basically to, to drive the conversation because he's this a uh, really well-known general who had the success, of course, at, at, uh, at Inshan mm. and overcame all of the, the, uh, the skeptics to conduct this, this uh, excellent uh, amphibious operation that, that turned the tide of the war. Uh, and so basically, um, he reinforced by a, a staff that really has this uh, very, I would say, uh, almost sycophantic relationship with him, is basically able to drive the conversation uh, in, in that direction. And basically get it to the point where not only is, is uh, Chinese intervention being thought as unlikely, but also that something is really not worth preparing for in a military sense. And so that's what leads um, the United Nations command forces to be so overextended mm. uh, as though there's no chance that the Chinese could effectively intervene. Uh, and that's what really makes us vulnerable. It's not just that we, we thought it was unlikely that they were going to intervene in, in many quarters, but it was also that we were just fundamentally unprepared for a large-scale intervention. Now, it, it's my understanding that earlier, early in 1950, before the war had even started, when, when it was you know, still being planned between Stalin and uh, Kim Il-sung in Moscow, that there was an agreement that the Soviet Union wouldn't help North Korea fight a ground war, but that China 
uh, under Chairman Mao Wood. Uh, was there a condition or a set of conditions that were set for when the Chinese would intervene or some kind of timeline? Because, of course, the Chinese troops were not there from the beginning on June 25th. They started to enter the war around October. So how was that uh, established or set? Yeah, so I think it was very much a situation in flux, and the Chinese would have been perfectly content to avoid getting involved if the North Korean army was more successful. As early as July, China mm. sent a military intelligence team to North Korea. They were welcomed by Kim Il-sung. They got a direct line to his office. Uh, in September, they sent a military observation group. It advised Kim to seek the enemy's weak points and destroy them part by part. Instead of clashing against full divisions head on, they should spread the UN troops out and pin them down, try to isolate regiments. And much of this advice went unheeded by Kim Il-sung, but these tactics will sound familiar to anyone who studied the Korean War because that's exactly what China did mm. uh, when they came in and during the Ch Chosun Reservoir campaign. The Chinese military commanders used the, this exact style of fighting. So I think what happened was that in the end, Mao knew that it, it, was in his, it was in China's interest to get involved. And the decision had been made in August that we are going to intervene, but it's going to be at a time of our choosing. And so that strategic decision had been made as early as August. Mm. However, they waited to accumulate a tactical advantage for the U.S., and UN and South Korean forces to spread out, which they did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As they proceeded north towards the Yalu River, they spread out. And this made it much more easy for the Chinese commander to execute that exact style of fighting that they had advocated to North Koreans, but not been utilized. Now, the, the Soviets were, they were uh, initially being asked by the Chinese, will you provide air power? Will you provide air power? And Stalin keeps balking on it. He keeps, uh, you know, making half commitments and, and basically withholding any sort of commitment. And Mao says, okay, we're going to go in anyhow. Uh, and years later, when they meet, uh, they're unable to agree who eventually gave Kim Il-sung the final green light to actually go forward with the invasion. So a lot of confusion, much less centrality of decision making than the US had given them credit for, mm. and, and everyone really pursuing their own interests, not some unified communist sort of uh, strategic goal. Now, in that lead up to the period before the, the Chinese intervention, uh, anyone who's read anything about the history of the Korean War, and I, I confess I haven't read a heck of a lot, but I'm familiar with this, uh, this warning that the, uh, the Chinese Foreign Minister Zhao Enlai gave through the Indian ambassador to China, uh, K.M. Panaka, which was supposed to be passed on to America. You know, if you come too close uh, to the Yalu, we'll be forced to, uh, to get involved. That message was passed on, but it wasn't really heeded. Uh, why was it given in such a, a roundabout, indirect way through the Indian ambassador rather than directly? Do we know anything about that? Well, one reason was that communications between the US and China were basically non-existent at the time, despite some effort to establish communications. Hmm. And of course, China's lack of a seat at the United Nations also played a role in that. But so yeah, the, the need for communications is definitely underlined by direct communication. So you have some credible means of conveying messages to one another. And then the other reason that it wasn't taken seriously in Washington was this whole notion that the Chinese started that their forces were volunteers. And the, the, you know, the intelligence community continued to think that these quote unquote volunteers, uh, they, they were regular members of the PLA, were relatively unimportant additions to regular NK units. And they made that assessment all the way through November. That was repeated in propaganda, radio broadcasts. And so 
later on when China wants to signal, uh, make a, a credible warning and a credible threat that they're going to fight if the U.S. crosses the 38th parallel, this message is sort of undercut by their own actions. Mm. So th that's just like an, an interesting sort of corollary of that decision to gain a tactical advantage. They sort of undercut their own ability to send a credible signal. Now, is that uh, creative fiction that th these were not soldiers from the People's Liberation Army, but rather Chinese people's volunteers, sort of a, you know, almost a, a ragtag bunch of, uh, of people who just happened to be fighting together with the North Koreans? Is that still maintained today? So, yeah, there, there's been a big change in, in the way that this whole period is portrayed in China's Korean War narrative. Uh, and the biggest change came last year during China's celebration of the 70th anniversary of the Korean <laughs> War. So they really saw these documentaries, movies, TV shows, and museum exhibitions, and multiple speeches from Chairman Xi Jinping. And the big departure uh, from the previous narrative was in, in the past, there was this emphasis on explaining intervention based on the cause of fraternal socialism. But now it's much more rooted on China standing up for its own security needs. Uh, in the past, there was much more delicacy about explicitly describing conflict with the U.S. Mm. Uh, emphasis, like in museum ex exhibitions, they'd say against U.N. forces, right? Uh. But today, the point, the whole point is to emphasize that China stood up to the U.S., right. uh, describing it as an imperialist power. So right now, I think it's being used, this bolder and more confrontational depiction is being used by Xi to, to signify his more aggressive approach in the modern day. Right. So that, that's quite a recent shift. And because I remember hearing uh, quite recently from friend and uh, regular, uh, irregular guest on this podcast, retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, uh, that when he was at uh, Panmunjom in uh, the 1990s, and the Chinese still had representatives there at the, uh, the talks in uh, Panmunjom, that they were still wearing a very special uniform that looks almost identical to the People's Liberation Army uniform, but with a different logo on the cap. So that it was clear that it was not PLA, but Chinese people's volunteers. So they were maintaining that well until uh, the mid 1990s when they stopped coming. But now you're saying that they're, they're much more obvious that uh, this was actually China standing up as a nation to the United States. Now, Jacko, there is one thing, though, when it comes to the armistice, the, the Chinese still have not uh, re returned um, to the armistice mechanism, and they, they have not formally recognized that China itself is an actual signatory to the, to the armistice. So at least in, in that realm, the huh. Chinese are still very much keeping the, this uh, involvement at arm's length. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Okay. So the armistice was signed not by the, uh, the People's Republic of China, not by the People's Liberation Army, but by the Chinese People's Volunteers. Is that correct? That is correct. Right. So, so then when, when people say, well, you know, China's part of the armistice, they say, well, no, we're not. It, it, it's these, these irregulars, these volunteers who, who went uh, across the border into North Korea and fought with the North Koreans with or without our blessing. That, that is essentially uh, the, the way it's portrayed. So they're kind of, uh, they're trying to have it both ways to say that they, they yeah. fought this war against American imperialism, but right. they're not responsible for the armistice. <laughs> Right, because the the, uh, the Korean War, of course, has a different uh, formal name in China, uh, in Chinese, rather. Um, does either of you remember the, uh, it's a very long name, um, the War Against American Imperialism and to Help? No. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, the, the War Against American Aggression and to, to Help the, the Korean Neighbors or something like that. Right. Anyway, if, right. if we had to put a, a, a specific date on the beginning of uh, Chinese active intervention in the Korean War, when would that be? Presumably, I'm guessing sometime in October 1950? 
Well, it depends how you how you want to. <laughs> sorry to <laughs> complicate this, but I, I mean, do we mean boots on the ground? Do we mean sending? So they sent uh, ethnic Koreans who fought in the Chinese War. They they sent that. Uh, I think early enough for Kim's initial invasion. Right, right. Jonathan, you're spot on that that the invasion would not have been possible, actually, if the Chinese had not released Korean uh, soldiers from their service and allowed them to join uh, the, the then still fairly nascent Korean uh, People's Army. And furthermore, um, there were actually some of the key commanders in the initial attack uh, were actually released from uh, Chinese service to be part of forming the, the KPA and then preparing it for the offensive. Okay, that, but if we look at it then in terms of uh, chain of command or, or, uh, or, or you know, who gives orders, um, when was it that there were Chinese commanders who were answerable to Chinese people above them who were, um, you know, giving orders uh, in the Korean War? So I think the first time that we see reports of clashes between Chinese forces and UN-US ROK forces is in October. Mm. And that's based on reports from you know, memoirs of soldiers and POW testimonies. And you interviewed recently yeah. Mr. Dick Underwood, and that was such an inter interesting interview. And it's thanks to people like him that we get a sense from for when these uh, early clashes happened, uh, late, late October. Right. And, you know, if we only relied on the joint services operation under Far, Far East Command, which was in Tokyo under MacArthur's control and his intelligence chief, uh, Major General Charles Willoughby, if we only relied on that information, we'd have a much different sense of when the Chinese actually got involved. But by early November, it was becoming more obvious to Willoughby, and he started to make a change in assessment. But MacArthur, it was a really hard, <laughs> it was really hard for him to finally accept that the Chinese were here in force. And whether that was a genuine surprise on his part, or whether he had just hoped to override those assessments so he could continue his autonomy, um, I, I think that's a little bit more up for debate. Mm. Uh, but it, but it took him uh, it took him a while until late. November after the major concentrated strikes before he finally admitted that yeah they're they're here in force and they're here to make a difference right so late November they could no longer be ignored yes right mm. remind us again when was General MacArthur fired by President Truman or removed from command by President Truman it took a while afterwards I'm not sure it's the exact date but yes yeah, so his reputation was sterling remember and especially after Inchon. And he had been advised by the Joint Chiefs to feel tactically unhampered, mm. uh, tactically and strategically unhampered, and proceed north of the 30th ballot. So he, he's getting all this freedom. He's getting all this ability to exercise his own judgment. But also part of that is conditioned on the fact that he's misleading no. <laughs> uh, the Joint Chiefs and, and the White House about the actual battlefield conditions. So who knows if their assessment would have changed very much if it was able, if if the White House and if the Joint Chiefs were given a better quality of information. But it's worth noting that they, the policymakers, had their own very strong entrenched biases that were preventing them from understanding China's strategic interest in making a forceful intervention. And even it's possible that even if they were given really, really strong warning calls, that they wouldn't have been able to act on it and recognize it. Remember, they still thought it was a bluff when China said, hey, right. don't go over the 38th. <laughs> Everybody thought that that was still a bluff. 
Marcus, I've got to ask you, uh, because you've got uh, some recent experience of working uh, with uh, folks in the military. Is that degree of autonomy practiced by General MacArthur something that is absolutely impossible today? That sort of sense of being off the leash, unreined, no checks and balances? Yeah, so I, I think the, the nature of how command and control was conducted and the role of the commander in chief, you know, the president of the United States in military operations was, was fundamentally different mm. uh, in, in 1950. So uh, it, it, from a technological standpoint, it would be so much harder for the White House, for the NSC, or even for the Joint Chiefs to monitor uh, what was going on. And so there was much more deference um, to the commander on the ground than I argue there would be today. Mm. Uh, but but also, I think more broadly, MacArthur was such a unique figure in American military history. I don't think that there is mm. uh, a, a general who was given such such autonomy uh, and, and, and had such a reputation uh, as MacArthur did. So I think he exploited and, and well beyond even the authority that he was delegated, even with the tether again being so long. Uh, and, and so I do think this was a really unique situation. And I would argue, actually, it was uh, th this failure to anticipate and, and block the Chinese intervention, followed by his uh, involvement in policy and, and going well beyond uh, what would be the role of a, of a wartime commander in terms of speaking to policy of, of how to defeat, um, how to defeat the North Koreans, how to defeat the Chinese and how to and how to deal with communism in general, hmm. I think those led to changes in, in civil military relationships that actually uh, were designed in many ways to prevent a future MacArthur. Ah. Um, so, so I think that was the probably the, the apex uh, yeah. of the amount of authority and power that an individual commander could have in, in the modern area. There, there might have been examples uh, from distant history, but at least in the modern era, I, I don't think that there is a possibility under our current system to have another MacArthur-like uh, figure emerge and have that level of authority and autonomy. It really speaks, I guess, to uh, to what a complex and still controversial character MacArthur is, right? I mean, there, there are uh, uh, certainly a lot of older people in South Korea today who are still um, very, very grateful to MacArthur because you know they feel he saved almost single-handedly saved the South Korean nation from complete destruction uh, by the the North Korean uh, regime. But on the other hand, I mean, we're learning here uh, that he was ignoring a lot of things. He had a lot of hubris. Uh, he was doing a lot more, you know, going above and beyond what a, a military commander on the ground should be doing. So there's a lot of, yeah, well, it, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? He's not a simple character to sum up. No, he's not. And the, the, the thing that's also often forgotten is MacArthur played such a huge role in uh, arguing for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from, from Korea and, and only a, a very small contingent uh, for advisory and assistance remaining behind. So you, you mean in, in 1949, right? Before the invasion. Right. Yeah. So, so he, may ha he may have saved Korea at, at Incheon and turned yeah. the tide, but it was his uh, decision that uh, Korea was not strategically important enough to base U.S. forces forward. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that actually allowed for the failure of deterrence uh, and that essentially encouraged the North Koreans to to invade. So, and then of course later on, um, his failure to anticipate and blunt um, the Chinese intervention uh, also made it uh, impossible to have uh, reunification of the Korean Peninsula for uh, for at least uh, seven decades in in a way that would have been very positive for the Korean people. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think when when you look at it at the end of the day, uh, MacArthur saved Korea or at least South Korea from his own mistake. 
Um, <laughs> and then, and then in the end, um, couldn't stick the landing, botched the the, the final uh, counteroffensive uh, into uh, what could have been the final counteroffensive to bring an end to uh, North Korea once and for all. So mm. I, I think uh, that that MacArthur unfortunately is given a bit too much credit. Right. Just numerically here, at full strength, what was the size of the troop commitment by China in Korean territory? Ballpark figure, obviously. Yeah, hundreds of thousands. And then over the course of the whole war, upwards of one to two million. Wow. Uh, but that's, these are estimates, right? But a, a significant source of manpower. And, and you got to think about this in terms of Mao's perspective, right? He wants to be deploying those forces across the Taiwan Strait. <laughs> he doesn't want them right. bombed out. Korea. So... Um, yeah, ju just a, a massive mobilization of manpower. Uh, now, to, to what extent was there a reflection and soul searching by the United States or by the United Nations Command in the near aftermath of the Chinese intervention in Korea? I mean, a lot. You know, it, it was obvious that, you know, this was uh, an intelligence failure, but there was also so many other failures adjacent to it that supported it and made it possible. However, there was indeed soul searching. And, one of my favorite documents and, and a great source of um, information and analysis for me is this 1955 retrospective analysis that the mm. CIA did. And, and they're, they're basically saying they were very young at this age, right? Uh, they're, a, they're a new organization, right? Made what, yeah, months they were, before the Korean War. Right. They're just learning to walk at this stage, right? And, you know, following in the footsteps of the OSS, but a very different mandate. And, so they're, they're basically, they're trying to figure out how do we get this wrong and what can we do differently in order mm. to get it right going forward. And some of it was just purely bureaucratic and not having uh, access to the ears of the policymakers, et cetera. But uh, some of it was due to uh, analytical errors. And so they, they said that the fundamental reason that we botched the, an analysis of China's intent to intervene was a failure to gauge the strategic thinking of Mao and Stalin. Right. So it, it's these things like over centralization of decision making. They thought Stalin was in control and Stalin's um, reservations about escalation to global war would prevent him from using the Chinese forces. Right. But he couldn't use the Chinese forces. The Chinese Chinese leadership decided to go in for their own reasons. They didn't mm. do, do it because Stalin told them to. Uh, and, and lots of other things, right? Mirror imaging, we couldn't put ourselves in, in their shoes, perceive their threat perception. Uh, Truman was, you know, making statements, we are the Chinese people's friends, we have no designs on Chinese territory. You know, it, it just wasn't understood that this, this was falling on deaf ears, right? For, for the Chinese, um, the fact that America had, had come back in force was, was, was the threat, right? Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, a lot of, in short, a lot of soul searching afterwards. Now, You've just mentioned this 1955 CIA uh, review, uh, and that was only a couple of years after the armistice was signed. And of course, there have been many books and papers written on this subject in the last 70 years. Um, so it makes me wonder, what is there left to discover? How has, from the paper that you've written most recently, how has the understanding of what went wrong changed over time? Where are we at now that we didn't know in 1955? I think we just have a lot of new materials, right? We, especially from the Chinese and the Soviet sides. Ah, we have yes. all these archival records, mm -hmm. memos, memoirs, et cetera. And we can understand much better than ever before both sides of the narrative. So this lets us draw these two parallel lines, the Chinese decision-making process on one side, and then the other is the US assessment, right? And, and then we see these lines converge and diverge. Where, where do we get it right? Where do we get it wrong? 
Uh, and, and then we could bring to bear interesting diagnostic tool, tools, things like cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. And that helps us to understand uh, some sort of systematic explanation for, for why we tried, why we made these errors. And uh, we could try to study and learn from that. And, you know, the, the hope is that if we learn the deep reasons that we fail to understand China's strategic calculus, then we can avoid making these same mistakes again. Yeah, tell us a bit more about cognitive biases. That's uh, from something from psychology, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, you know, Marcus can talk to us about Hewer, who wrote the seminal book about this. And I'm not, you know, I, I have no experience in the intelligence community, but of course, Marcus has so much. And this book is like the Bible, right? It's so important, and it outlines all of these different mistakes that mm. just people tend to naturally make. Their heuristics, their psychological shortcuts that help us to understand a very complicated world. Uh, and these are the reason that they're so cool is because we also do them in our daily life. So like oversensitivity to consistency, mm. that's when we, we see like a small data set, but we observe some consistency and we tend to, you know, just think that there's a causal relationship here. So the way that that applies to the Korean War was we thought that China, you know, they didn't enter the war at earlier stages, right? So they didn't enter during the Incheon landing. They didn't enter right when we crossed the 38th parallel. We thought that this meant, okay, let's draw a general rule from this small, you know, set of data points that China is unwilling to fight at all. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, a, that's another reason why Joe and Lai's uh, message got disregarded, right? Because we, we said, oh, no, don't, don't look at what they say. Look at what they do. And they have demonstrated that they're not willing to fight us. Uh, but there's lots of other ones. And uh, yeah, I'm wondering if Marcus could talk a little bit about how that gets used. And mm. uh... Go ahead, Marcus. Yeah, so Jonathan, and a great point about, yeah, Richard Hoyer authored the Psychology of Intelligence Analysis um, over a couple decades ago, and it really has been uh, a Bible, sort of a foundation for uh, analysts to understand uh, the, these sorts of uh, biases and how to combat them. I, I think it's important to keep in mind when, when you uh, talk about the issues of bias is that, that, that this is something that's often thought of in a, in a very sort of negative light. And, and certainly the, the word bias itself is loaded with mm. uh, some emotional, uh, you know, a sort of imagery almost is that, that this is- You could say people are biased against bias. Right, but, <laughs> but uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it, analytic uh, biases permeate uh, the human condition, right? Is that it, it is the ability to make a, a, a sort of a hip shot decision about something without having to, to analyze it, to rely on your biases. That, that basically allows the, the human mind to function in conditions of, of great uncertainty when, when quick decisions have to be made. The problem is biases are, are pretty good for, you know, sort of a good enough solution for dealing with something that's not particularly important or a decision that has to be made pretty quickly based on almost on instinct. Um, but for important decisions that have to be made that are going to, going to affect people's lives over the long term, going to affect millions of lives, the, these biases really have to be uh, overcome or at the very least uh, fully understood and put in check. Mm. Uh, and so when you look at the, the biases that were at play, the, there's the cognitive biases that existed in uh, General Douglas MacArthur and the people around him, I think then were magnified by the effects of organizational dysfunctionality and biases, which then rippled throughout um, the U.S. Uh, intelligence and decision-making system uh, to the point where it played also even on, on uh, President Truman's own personal biases in, in not wanting to, uh, to be seen as trying to override th this uh, very successful General MacArthur and his probably his own um, bias to defer 
to to the general in in terms of the the, the conduct of the war as much uh, as in many ways he was interpersonally biased uh, against MacArthur. He didn't like MacArthur. Right. Um, he, he was also his cognitive biases uh, basically were exploited by MacArthur to allow him to get that 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 free hand. Mm. Um, so I I think you know, we can talk more, uh, you know, in the discussion about how these, these uh, personal biases were magnified by the, the structural factors. Um, but I think that was a big element here is that there was, there were not a lot of mechanisms to keep those, those personal cognitive biases in check. Now, uh, apart from personal cognitive biases, what about things like uh, interagency rivalries and, and, and competition? I mean, do you have a lot of different uh, organization and each branch of the military service doing its own intelligence collection and analysis. How did that affect the ability of the intelligence community to uh, to foresee and also to recognize when it was happening at uh, the Chinese intervention? I, I think that the the intelligence community as a, as a uh, as a community was really only starting to form its identity and its organizational common organizational culture. Uh, and so what you had uh, during this period was uh, a disproportionate emphasis, I, I think, on the commander on the ground and on the, the, the J-2 uh, on the ground. The J-2 is the, is the term for the, uh, the intelligence officer who's in, in, in the lead intelligence officer in a joint organization, uh, the, the, in, in, case, in this case, the J-2 for Far East Command. Uh, and you didn't really have I think the ability um, within these or the organizational structures to essentially counterbalance uh, that disproportionate uh, emphasis there, uh, and then also I, I think the the other you know key element was that there was the interpersonal um, dysfunctionality again in terms of how MacArthur related to his own staff, how he related to the uh, to the army uh, uh, staff and to the joint staff. So he was basically in a position where. The uh, huge chunk of the military intelligence uh, apparatus, regardless of, of service, was going to defer to him mm. when it came to this question of, of Chinese intervention. Uh, and so, so I think that the effects, um, again, were very much magnified uh, by these structural factors. The fact that you didn't have uh, a, a really robust intelligence community that could have this sorts of uh, a push and pull that would be able to then keep, keep these sorts of biases in check and allow for different organizations with different groups of people who might also be biased, but biased in different ways to, to basically lead to a result that at least was, would, would have been a little bit closer to the ground truth of how things were going to unfold. Now, there was um, this, uh, this character, another character uh, who uh, should mention in the story, he gets a, a footnote in uh, Jonathan's paper, um, but Blaine Harden wrote a whole book about him, Donald Nichols, the King of Spies, who was in Korea also acting to a certain extent, off the leash and, and with autonomy. Uh, he's someone I think about because he apparently had a ring of spies in North Korea uh, that gave him uh, a range of dates in which the North Korean invasion would likely occur, including up to uh, June 25th. And he tried to warn the Far East Command. Uh, can you say anything about him? He was a fascinating figure. And just the fact that he was uh, part of the Air Force, right? Right. And, but he was, he was out doing his own thing. That's just sort of testament to the conditions on the ground um, and, and what a large role the military played in terms of the uh, monopolizing the intelligence gathering, collection and distribution. Um, the CIA did not get to play as large a role as um, they probably as would be optimal because of just this looming presence of MacArthur 
and Far East Command and the Joint Services Operation, they, they were um, overseeing the show. But yeah, when we look back at some of the intelligence insights that he was able to gather, he said, look at these runways. They're distributed in a pattern that's meant for offense, not defense, right mm. along the border. Look at them constructing them. This is, uh, he wrote a report, I think, titled um, North Korea's menacing preparations for war, right? Like he, he was sounding the warning bell and it was not being heard. Right. And, and is that because, well, it, it, because he was talking against what uh, the powerful people uh, were saying, Willoughby and, and MacArthur? I would say so. Yeah, it, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the, the Air Force uh, w- was still relatively new at the time. And there, there was still some uh, lingering, I think, uh, inter-service r- r- rivalry from some senior leaders in the Army who would have been happier in some ways if the Air Force had remained uh, essentially under the army's thumb. Mm. So there is an organizational aspect to it, but it's it's also important to keep in mind that Nichols himself uh, was a bit of an odd duck yeah. um, and, and didn't travel in the sorts of circles where he was going to have the same kind of uh, credibility uh, as someone who had, uh, say, served with uh, with General MacArthur in the Second World War and had established himself, you know, as Willoughby had um, with uh, this, uh, this reputation of, of having been in a, a senior level intelligence position uh, during the war. So Nichols' rise was was amazing and what he was able to do was impressive, but uh, it wasn't necessarily very understood or respected uh, by anybody who didn't have direct uh, experience uh, dealing with what he'd managed to accomplish on the ground or, or someone who had sort of more of an organizational interest in, in promoting his voice. And so, uh, so I think there was, a, there was an interpersonal and, and organizational factor uh, you know, here at play, where 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 a lot of what uh, Nichols uh, had to say was sort of uh, d- either didn't get to people or was kind of dismissed out of hand. It is a it's a fascinating story. I think it would make a great film. Uh, do check it out, uh, listeners. Uh, King of Spies uh, by Blaine Harden. It's a I think a long overdue book because until then the only thing that existed uh, about Donald Nichols was his um his own uh, self published autobiography, which was um of uh, dubious uh, factual uh, quality, I, I think. Uh, anyway, let, let's move on to the, uh, the present day. Now, China uh, today, you, you said earlier, Marcus, that it's a, uh, a significant regional challenge. Uh, I think challenge is the right word there. It, it aims to have military parity with the US by 2050. That's just a couple of decades from now. And it seems that the Chinese military will play a more active role in advancing Chinese foreign policy. Is this why it's a, a good time to be looking at once again uh, or relearning these lessons from 1950? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's very timely. Uh, I, I think we uh, tried, you know, in the United States to do this pivot to Asia, to use uh, Kurt Gamble's uh, phrase that he popularized hmm. uh, for quite a long time. But it hasn't been until, uh, I would argue, quite recently uh, that we've had a much more uh, robust effort within uh, within the U.S. government, within the U.S. national security community, to really focus more on China. So I think now is the time um, to go back and look and, and see if we can learn the right lessons uh, from our history of, of dealing with uh, China, particularly communist China. Uh, and really, uh, I would argue the, f- the first time uh, that we get, got it really badly wrong uh, after, of course, the, the initial uh, you know, uh, failure to prevent the emergence of a communist China in the first place, but the first time uh, dealing with an established communist China uh, where, where we had a, a major failure of policy and intelligence was uh, during the, the Korean War and the, this failure to anticipate and stop the intervention. So I think starting with that, 
uh, is really an important uh, intellectual foundation uh, for preventing the, the, the same sort of uh, policy uh, operational and intelligence errors again. Now, we're also talking, you know, at an interesting time uh, historically that, you know, literally today, uh, earlier uh, on, on uh, August 16th, uh, I watched the uh, the fall of Kabul on the news there and then uh, uh, in Afghanistan. And that's a uh, very similar thing. You know, should this have been foreseen? Uh, were we, you know, was the international community blind or not aware that uh, the Taliban would take over so quickly? Is it once again the same cognitive biases at work? So I think there is a similar cognitive bias in, in one aspect in that it's really challenging intellectually to look at the complex dynamics of how two forces will interact, right? So you not only have to uh, uh, understand the adversary, you have to understand yourself. And it's mm -hmm. uh, just like uh, Sun Tzu said, uh, in terms of uh, you must uh, you know, know, know the adversary uh, you know, as well as yourself in, uh, or, or, or you, will, you will succumb in battle. And so uh, I think that, that sort of fundamental starting point of having to understand both the, the adversary uh, and the allied and even your own, uh, in this case, US capabilities uh, and how these uh, play uh, interplay with each other is really key. Uh, and it's very challenging and organizationally it's difficult because keep in mind the intelligence officer is, is responsible for understanding the adversary. But as far as the friendly capabilities, that is generally not the role of intelligence. That's the role of uh, planners and operators and policymakers. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, a lot of times intelligence uh, gets portrayed as though its job is to uh, predict the future like it has some kind of crystal ball. But it's important to, to recognize that uh, intelligence officers don't have the remit to evaluate the effectiveness of, of friendly uh, forces. We, we don't you know, see the intelligence officers having this really broad remit that they have in other countries to really evaluate the, the policies uh, of, of their own country and, and certainly not uh, conduct evaluations of the capabilities of, of its own military forces. And so I think that's a, that is a shortcoming in our uh, ability to do analysis that is something that still exists and it's something that can be overcome uh, through teamwork, but it's something that, that is a part of our national character that we don't want to have intelligence officers uh, examining every aspect uh, you know, of life. So it's something that we have to essentially overcome in order to be able to make good assessments about how a situation could unfold. That's such a good point. I just wanted to add one thing because this is so fascinating and to tie it into the Korean War, I would say that the Chinese knew themselves and they knew us better than we knew the Chinese or we knew ourselves, hmm. right? Because what was our signaling on Korea and the peninsula before the war, right? The, the famous National Press Club speech by Atchison, Atchison. where he you know, excluded Korea from the perimeter defense line that the United States was willing to commit to. But the Chinese had a very keen understanding about they advised the, the military advisors told Kim Il-sung, watch out for an amphibious landing around the west coast of the peninsula, somewhere around Incheon. We studied MacArthur's Pacific campaign, and we think that's what he's probably going to do. Wow. Lo and behold, in September, that's exactly what happened, right? So the Chinese understood us much better than we understood them and we understood ourselves. And that bestowed them such a tremendous tactical advantage during the actual fighting itself. What was that about Chinese strategic culture that made it so hard for 
uh, the UN side uh, to understand their risk calculus in 1950? And, and does that still uh, apply today? Yeah, I think so. One, one of my favorite, favorite depictions of this is by Kissinger. And he, what he talked about is that Mao's aggressive form of deterrence is much closer to the Western idea of preemption. You strike fo- first against an imminent threat, mm. use that sudden blow, and try to change the way the opponent uh, thinks about the conflict, takes risks, makes concessions, uh, and, and then drag out a political phase and um, come to a, a settlement that's more favorable for Chinese interests. And we saw this in Korea, and then we saw it again in the Sino-Indian War, in the Viet- Sino-Vietnamese War. Um, from our point of view, these might look like preemptive or preventive wars, but Chinese military doctrine describes these as self-defensive counterattacks, right? So just the way that they view conflict is so very different. When was the most recent time that we saw that? Was it the, uh, I think you just mentioned uh, with, with Vietnam in the 1970s, was that the most recent one? 79 is the most recent example that I could come up with off the tip of my tongue. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. If- I mean, I would argue um, that we saw a recent example in terms of the the, the Chinese uh, forcible uh, takeover and imposition of their, their direct rule over Hong Kong, right? Ah. I, I think if you had yeah. Uh, yeah. asked uh, many kind of typical America Americans watching China from a distance who haven't really studied China closely, I think they would have argued, oh, China would never do that. It would be too big of a hit to their international reputation. Mm. Uh, and then there'd be this this risk by doing that that they would they'd be fomenting further uh, you know resistance to Communist Party rule. And then of course it would be much harder than to uh, to be able to have a uh, a, a peaceable uh, absorption of Taiwan. And so China would never do this. It'd be such a bad example. It'd be so risky uh, and these sorts of things. And then of course the the Chinese did it. So I'm not saying that every American had that point of view, but I think there were lots of uh, kind of distant observers of China who really got their the risk calculus for uh, China's approach to Hong Kong uh, wrong hmm. uh, and really thought that China was going to be much more careful and more cautious uh, about how it dealt with uh, with Hong Kong. I think that uh, that hopefully opened people's eyes. And I do think it's one of the reasons why we have this moment now where we're being much more, I think, realistic about uh, China's willingness to take risk and its willingness really to defy sort of international norms and, 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 and essentially antagonize the international community if that's what it takes to achieve its goals. Right. Yes, I, I think that's a, a fair point. And of course, um, a lot of the conversation usually about uh, US-China escalation uh, focuses um, you know, for historic reasons on Taiwan uh, and more recently on the South China Sea. But I wonder if we're underplaying the risks that the Korean Peninsula could once again bring the US and China into some kind of uh, military conflict with each other, despite both parties hoping to avoid uh, that eventuality. Yeah, I think that's a, a very real concern. And I think uh, th- this goes back a long time. Uh, you know, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, that the, the first U.S. military response um, to the invasion uh, of South Korea by North Korea was actually to, to send uh, the Seventh Fleet to Taiwan Strait. Mm. Uh, and so even back then, the, the bias was in play that really it's, uh, you know, it's uh, China-Taiwan uh, should be the, the, the foremost concern. Uh, and so I, I think when you look at the complexities of a, a crisis on the Korean Peninsula where you have a nuclear-armed North Korea you have uh, South Korea that has military forces in its own right, seeks to be able to operate that military independently in, in defense of its own interests, uh, and certainly, uh, again, has, has the capability to, to follow through on that, uh, wedged in between 
uh, the China right on its border, Russia also on its border, uh, Japan just across um, you know, a, a fairly narrow sea in the grand scheme of things. And then, of course, U.S. forces based in South Korea and this, uh, this U.S.-South Korea alliance of longstanding. Uh, it makes for, a, I would argue, a much more uh, militarily and politically complex situation where it would be much more difficult to, uh, to really uh, understand and control the elements of how escalation would take place because there's so many different players involved. Whereas I think in Taiwan, the problem is very hard to deter uh, China, depending on the circumstance. But I think it's a bit simpler. Uh, right. and, and I think the fact that you don't have an additional nuclear armed power wedged in between, uh, for example, uh, and, and you don't have uh, Taiwan uh, having the, the, the level of, uh, I would argue, military independence and capability that, that South Korea has, I, I think it, it, it makes uh, Taiwan, again, a, a easier uh, situation to understand, even if not necessarily uh, easy to deal with. And I think, unfortunately, because of the fact that the, the way that we focus on national security issues in the Korean Peninsula has a tendency to center on North Korea as the primary actor, that we don't consider, uh, I think, other than, than the, the China-North uh, Korea relationship and maybe a little bit about the China-South Korea relationship, we don't really consider in these broader discussions, I think, very often uh, the, the situation that could arise uh, of a U.S.-China confrontation on the Korean Peninsula that isn't triggered by Washington or by Beijing, but it's yeah. triggered by some event that happens internally within North Korea or some external action that North Korea takes towards South Korea that leads to an escalation spiral. I think these are very uh, realistic and plausible scenarios for uh, potentially the US and China to be drawn into, uh, into a confrontation uh, without a whole lot of warning time and without a whole lot of ability to shape the situation in advance. Uh, and so I, I think this is a uh, underexamined uh, risk, certainly in the broader uh, national security community, uh, and and I think it, it deserves more more study and deserves more attention and, and uh, more preparation. But at the at the end of the day, there's so many variables involved. I think it's going to be much harder to anticipate uh, and to prevent uh, the the sort of uh, crisis that could lead to a U.S.-China confrontation in Korea than it would be. Uh, again, in relative terms, to a, to at least anticipate the conditions that are going to lead to that in in the Taiwan Strait. It does seem like something that, as you say, deserves a bit more study. Isn't this something that you would assume would be being uh, you know gamed out in simulations and that kind of thing? So, uh, Jacko, I'm not going to say what or isn't being uh, done, you know, inside the, the U.S. government on this topic, but I would say in the broader national security space that th this is something, uh, you know, again. Uh, that, that hasn't really been fully uh, thought through uh, in comparison to uh, a wide range of other important issues in dealing with China. And I think when you look at the, the studies that have been published on this question, uh, a lot of times uh, of U.S.-China confrontation, a lot of times the potential for a situation arise in Korea is mentioned, but uh, some of the studies actually just say, yes, and this would be very, very bad, um, you know, in some way, and talk about the the uh, mechanics of how uh, challenging it could be and, and the number of forces that could be involved. But in the end, it gets put aside as almost like this is too hard to think about. Let's focus on Taiwan because it's a much uh, simpler problem. So, so I would say uh, more, uh, as you say, gaming out of this possibility, more, more discussion um, and more consideration of, of how to deal with such an eventuality is really, uh, really vital. Looking at the possibility of uh some kind of instability or collapse of the North Korean government. 
given that, yeah, I'm not going to be able to find out what the US government thinks or knows about this, but what probability do you personally put on uh, a Chinese intervention in the case of, uh, of some internal event happening in North Korea? Answers from both of you. So uh, I think, Jacko, this is sort of, uh, as, uh, as I like to say, uh, intelligence officers often respond to a question with, it's complicated and it depends. Um, and it sounds like a cop-out, but I think that's got to be the answer in this case, uh, Jacko. Mm. I think it totally depends on the nature of the situation and to some extent also uh, on, on the triggering event and then also on the nature of how South Korea and the United States respond. And so I would say the answer to that question lies as much in Seoul and Washington as it does in Beijing. I think we can mm. affect the answer to that question on how we prepare for uh, in uh, the situation, engage with China, and how we posture in those initial hours or days uh, after the event. I think our actions um, could end up triggering a Chinese intervention, but they could also end up preventing a Chinese intervention, depending on how we handle it. So I think the answer is really not set to, to mm. that question. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great point. And you know, to the extent that communication with China is possible. That's a very good thing. I know that uh, former Secretary of State Tillerson did talk a little bit, or at least so the rumors go, about, you know, in a contingency, here's what the U.S. would do, and, and let's try to avoid any sort of contact uh, with one another. Um, but, you know, you, you think through some of these scenarios, right? You, you imagine, for instance, a, a nuclear disaster where there's an accident, maybe like a Fukushima-type you know, uh, an earthquake triggers a nuclear release. And then all of a sudden it becomes in the interest of both China and the U.S. and South Korea to try to do something to contain the problem, right? And, and if it was spilling over across the border into China, like China is very sensitive to that type of problem. And I think that's one of the reasons that they were willing to go along with the U.N. Security Council resolutions, the sanctions, uh, because that, that that was a genuine threat and concern for them, right? But Okay, so we're we're motivated by you know benevolent means to go in and prevent th this problem from getting worse. Uh, and you know the scenarios run the gamut: humanitarian disaster, yeah. or whatever. Um, but then, what happens next? Right? What happens after that? And, and that's that's the thing that needs to get more fully gamed out. Um, and you know, to the extent that coordination is possible with China, that's so 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 important. Unfortunately, they're reluctant to do that. And I think they're reluctant because they don't want to signal that they're betraying their buddies, North Korea. So, you know, perhaps uh, these discussions need to be have are taking place discreetly, and I just don't know about it. That's possible. Marcus, was it you? Did you say, Marcus, earlier in the conversation that uh, the Chinese are uh, forbidding their military commanders from t from having military to military talks with the Americans? Did I understand that right? Uh, no, I, I I didn't I didn't say that, uh, oh. Jacko. Okay, I must have. Uh... Yeah, I did. I said that one. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so is is that normal for two countries that are not allied but have an adversarial relationship with each other for them to, for their two militaries to talk? Good question. Yeah, Jacko, that's not necessarily unusual. I mean, it's a it's a fundamental premise of confidence building measures and efforts to prevent conflict uh, mm. that, have, that have proven, uh, I think, pretty effective over the years. I would argue uh, that, that even at times, it's that sort of dialogue that's taken place on the Korean Peninsula itself uh, between the, the UN command uh, and the, the, uh, the North Korean military, and then also uh, even between South and North Korea that has helped keep uh, conflicts from uh, escalating out of control. I think that the best example 
uh, that we've seen uh, is in 2015 uh, when we had those talks, which were not just purely military, but uh, those talks that took place at Panmunjom between uh, North and South to keep the uh, the crisis that began with the the two South Korean soldiers being maimed by uh, North Korean mines that they had secretly placed in the south half of the DMZ to keep that situation from escalating out of control. So, so I would say that there's a there's a long established uh, set of mechanisms uh, on on the Korean Peninsula um, and and more broadly in a lot of places to allow for these sorts of, uh, of conversations to to have the the uh, the at least the the pipelines in place to be able to have those discussions to keep a crisis from from escalating out of control. Uh, I, I think this is something that that works, and it's something um, that that should be reinforced and and supported um, by uh, by any any country that has an interest in avoiding uh, escalation to conflict. Okay, yeah, that does sound like a good idea. Yeah, we should probably have more of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, since this discussion started with. Um... You know, the, the uh, intelligence failures of 1950, it makes me wonder uh, what are uh, the best sources on China's military intentions uh, these days, both on a, a tactical and strategic level? So, Jacko, I think that the U.S. intelligence community has done a very good job in uh, recent years of being much more publicly uh, postured to be able to provide unclassified uh, level uh, assessments uh, not only the uh, U.S. intelligence community, but the U.S. military. Uh, and so I, I do think that uh, paying very close attention to what is coming out uh, from the Department of Defense, from the various military commands, and from uh, places like the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, where I used to work, I think recognizing that there is a, a limit to how much detail these organizations are going to be willing and able to go into, mm. uh, and, and there's always going to be more to the story that that can't be shared publicly. I think paying very close attention to what's in those documents and in those remarks um, is really a good foundational uh, starting point. People need to do their own study, and there's there's many uh, you know other sources out there. There's a lot of good work being done by various academics and uh, and think tank organizations, um, and there, there's a a voluminous list that I won't go through here, uh, but but at the end of the day, I, I do think it's it's worth looking at what comes out of those uh, those those organizations uh, that that are studying this inside the U.S. government and what they're able to share publicly, because uh, that the, there are a tremendous amount of resources and efforts being devoted to providing. Um, this uh, this unbiased uh, analysis as, as best as possible on the, the question of uh, China's military uh, intentions and capabilities. And just to add one thing, uh, the Congressional Executive Commission on China does annual reports and they're really great. There's mm. some like, people like me outside the government who never had government experience. That's a really good one. Where could people find that? That sounds like a very good uh, resource. Yeah, just Google Congressional Executive Commission on China and it'll mm -hmm. come right up. And they've got a bunch of annual reports, issue papers. So some of the uh, research I did about like contingency planning, they have really, really great uh, analysis on that. And that's all publicly available. Fantastic. And of course, for our listeners, a great place to start is with the paper that started this whole conversation off, Rethinking Intelligence Failure, China's Intervention in the Korean War. It's in the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, which sounds like a, a, a great thing to, uh, to thumb through, you know, at, at the dentist office or at, on the bedside <laughs> table. I mean, I've never heard of this journal before, but I love the title. It, it, 
it does have the, a, lot, you know, a lot of uh, tradecraft and uh, does, does it have ads for different gadgets and things? <laughs> Not quite, but the, the other articles in there are, are so fantastic and illuminating. So I encourage uh, the listeners to, to go and, and give it a crack. And uh, I'm sure you'll find something that interests you. That is that, that's a great recommendation. Do Google International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you both for coming on the show today, Jonathan Corrado and Marcus Kalauskas. Listeners, you can find them on Twitter at jcorrado1953, not because he's born in 1953, but because the armistice was signed then, I'm guessing. Nailed it. Yeah. And Mr. Underscore G underscore two. Thanks to both of you gentlemen for coming on the show. Thank, thank you, you Jacko. And, and thank you, Jonathan, for writing such an excellent article. Marcus, thank you for teaching me so much about this. And um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't really uh, have the, the nuance and, and beginning to understand it without your, without your guidance. So thanks to you. Wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have questions, feedback or guest recommendations, please send them along to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm -hmm.